0: this is the rational perspective i'm alec hogg and in this episode donald trump's presidential education Well, the millions who voted Donald Trump into the White House in 2016 believed that the controversial businessman would show the politicos a thing or two about deal-making and negotiating the best deal for the United States. It hasn't quite worked out that way. Because, compared with the complexity of the portfolio he now manages, Trump's domain of real estate is simplicity itself. With more than 200 nation-states and 7 billion people our world is a complicated place with an infinite number of moving parts. This complexity tends to deliver a minefield of unintended consequences for those who underestimate or are ignorant of this reality. Trump is finding this out the hard way as one seemingly good idea after another has bombed. Things that looked perfectly doable on the campaign trail just don't work in practice. But the consequence though has been another senior aide being blamed and fired. But Trump is now finally starting to realize that this isn't reality TV. After trumpeting by presidential tweet, inanities like trade wars are good and easily winnable, the president is discovering simplistic conclusions rarely work in the real world. His latest humiliation perhaps brought this home. It's the realization that the proposed trade war with China is going to hurt America and its allies far more than the intended target. So, once again, a rollback on a campaign promise. But even the most stubborn of our species don't keep banging their heads against the wall indefinitely. Carl Weinberg is the chief economist of high-frequency economics, and here he unpacks the backstory, starting off with a big question of the moment. As Bloomberg's Jonathan Farrow asked him, is the supposed looming trade war now on hold.
1: It is on hold. It'll be on hold until it's not on hold. There's no reason (laughs) to suspect that it's going to go either well uh, or badly. Uh, The scorecard is this. I think uh, China is having its way with the United States in this conversation, and uh, this was a a backdown by the United States. Uh, It avoids uh, a, a conflict, a tariff war that would have been to everybody's disadvantage, and it gives people a time to cool off. So I'm all in favor of it, and I hope it lasts, and I hope that that China and the United States can learn to work together rather than knock each other's heads. Well,
2: we can discuss how long-lasting it it might be. Um, For now, let's explore the vague commitments. The Chinese pledging to to rebalance the disparity between Chinese and the United States trade surplus. Um, How firm is that commitment to rebalance that? And, And what are you expecting to see, Carl? We've seen commitments to boost imports of energy, agriculture. Are they good things? Yeah, well, they'd be good things if they would happen. I don't know exactly how you
1: make them happen. I remember John Maynard, I remember reading about John Maynard Keynes uh, talking to Bertolt Olin about why Germany doesn't export more. You know, why doesn't Germany export more? And, and his idea was that Germany had to impoverish its workers to make all of its stuff cheaper. Um, I think at the end of the day, you know, the United States has to produce more stuff that China wants. We have stuff that China wants on the technology side, and, yeah. and we're not selling it to them. And that would be one way to reduce all of this. And that's the Chinese point. And as I said, I think the Chinese are really having their
2: way in this conversation. Well, let's talk about to what extent the Chinese, their commitments over the weekend. How much of that is just an organic, natural consequence of more growth in China, that they will need more? foreign agricultural goods. They will need more foreign energy sources as well.
1: Undoubtedly, uh, that's going to, growth is going to help move this conversation forward. They've agreed to buy things like energy. All right, we make energy. We export energy now in the United States. That's new. We have a comparative advantage in it, if you will, over uh, China. And uh, so therefore, we're going to sell some more of it. So I think that's kind of a natural evolution. Uh, I really do believe that a lot of the substance of what we've seen this weekend is really just a face-saving way for both sides to back exactly. down from the cliff, rather exactly. than any real commitment to do anything. It just gives everybody a way to say, okay, just kidding, ha-ha, let's move on with the conversation.
3: I strongly agree. And then within the face-saving, Dr. Weinberg, is the timeline. And the Chinese have every advantage, don't they? Don't they just
1: wait? Wait. Well, they're growing at uh, in a bad year at just under 7%, and the United States in a good year is growing at 2.5%. Yeah. So you do the math on that, and you start off with uh, China slightly larger than the U.S. economy in terms of uh, converting, looking at its economy in terms of the purchasing power of the money rather than the exchange rate, the way the World Bank looks at it. So they're already the largest economy on earth, and they're just going to pull farther and farther ahead with their silk route. Their exports are going to grow faster and faster than the United States. They have already Become the largest economy on Earth, and they're yeah. on track to become the dominant economy.
2: Well, I was going to say, Carl, the the trade hawks. What they really wanted was not just to rebalance the trade surplus; it was to go after Made in China, twenty twenty five, to go after the protected industries that they <clears throat> want to dominate on a worldwide basis. Um, have on. we seen a big loss for Navarro, <coughs> Wilbur Ross, and and Mister well, John? To your weekend? good
3: question, Greg Vialle posits in his morning note that Mr. Lighthizer and Mr. Navarro may resign.
2: Yeah, I actually saw the same thing in his morning you note. You did? And, and yeah. You were read in on the I was Chinese very, notes. I was very, oh, very read in. Um, Carl, <laughs> Carl, to what extent is it a loss for them over the weekend? And also, I should add, to what extent is this actually about a foreign policy goal that could come about next month when the United States sits down with North Korea? Yeah,
1: so um, there's a lot of questions in the question that you raised, right? I mean Navarro. uh, uh, In my view, all right, his point of view has always been wrong. So to have him excluded from the administration because what he's doing is not working or what he wants to do is not going to work, alright, that's a logical extension. It's an evolutionary sort of thing. It's not a revolutionary sort of thing. Uh, but I, I think that his mercantilism right. approach to US trade is just, is just off. As far as North Korea is concerned, I think the Chinese have a very clear upper hand here. Uh, the Chinese yeah. are saying to the North Koreans, you know, we'll give you what you want. Do what we want you to do, which is to make friends with South Korea and then to annex yourself to what we're doing. And that moves South Korea out of the U.S. fold.
0: Interesting stuff. But let's get into the real truth about the education that the president is getting.
1: The education that this administration is getting which is that trade is not a domestic issue, all right? but most American business is multinational. I mean, even my little business does uh, two-thirds of its revenues come from uh, overseas. Uh, production chains yeah. are linked. You know, you go after NAFTA, for example, as the current administration has, and suddenly the automobile manufacturers, a core industry in the United States, are saying, whoa, this affects us. We have to, to rope it back in so that our core businesses aren't affected and the whole economy isn't affected. So I think there's an educational process going on within the administration which is why the navarros may be stepping to this being pushed to the side and bigger more adults are coming into the
0: room fair enough but the one thing that donald trump has done is rattle the cages shake up the status quo agitate the water so vigorously disrupt the place is this a good thing or maybe not here's weinberg
1: i think that uh ripping up the script without having a new script in its place is a risky business. Yeah. Right? And, uh, the US economic policy can't get away with it because there are many more complicated moving parts and to my mind the, f- the fault in this area of the Trump administration has been that they've been willing to take things off the table and to break things up, to remove elements from pieces from the puzzle without having replacement pieces ready to go. And that's been true of the China policy. It's been true of NAFTA, where we're now seeing them reel that back in as well. All right, it was true of Trans-Pacific Partnership, where suddenly we want to get back in it again. It's, it's true of so many things yeah. because you can't leave a vacuum because if you leave a void, someone like China will step into it and fill it for you.
0: So how did America get into such a chaotic situation? How was it possible that the leader of the free world, the largest economy on earth, the home of the great technological innovations, the country that with 5% of the world's population controls 25% of the world's wealth? How did it become better known today for its blunders than its great leadership? Bill Schneider, who served as CNN's senior political analyst for two decades before joining Third Way, which is a Washington think tank, has just written a book called Standoff, How America Became Ungovernable. He's got some answers. And in his quest to understand how America ended up with a populist president, Schneider examined elections there over the last 50 years, and then he tracked the U.S.'s path to a unique brand of populism. That at least partly seems to be economically progressive, think tax cuts, but also culturally conservative, think anti-immigration isolationists. Schneider offers some fascinating insights. He was talking to the Bloomberg surveillance team. So there you have it. America has a president that its people wanted, one who is trying to fulfill His populist promises that they also wanted, or at least those who voted for him did. The trouble is, every time unintended consequences come back to bite them. Simplistic approaches don't really work in a complex world. One hopes that Carl Weinberg is right and that adults are finally starting to enter the Oval Office around the incumbent.
4: We're a system that's very difficult to govern. We were designed not to be easy to govern. Uh, when there's a crisis, everything comes into place. You know, for one year after 9-11, Democrats supported President Bush. And the country it looked like a consensus was being built because there was a crisis in the world and in the United States. It didn't last very long because a year after 9-11, President Bush started the uh, rollout for the Iraq war. And all the old divisions surfaced once again.
3: I look at where we are and help John Farrell here, the young man from the United Kingdom, (laughs) and that there's this populism mood that's out there. We see it everywhere. What is the flavor of populism that is the standoff of American politics? The flavor of populism is resentment of elites. Uh, That's very deep. Resentment's a
4: big word here, isn't it? Resentment, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of resentment. Uh, And... um, uh, in the United States, you know, the, the the constituency that Trump mobilized are basically people who feel disrespected. They went into a rage over President Obama. Uh, they called it the, ra- the reign of political correctness, because political correctness is the belief in diversity and inclusion. And a lot of these working class white men think inclusion does not include them.
2: That's a really interesting point. And to your point, Bill, we've had four presidents, two Democrats, two Republicans that have promised to unite and to heal and totally and utterly failed. Why different. is it so different this time around?
4: We have a president who is governing by dividing. Uh, president Trump is doing something no other president has done. He ran as a divider by mobilizing this angry constituency that feels disrespected. Remember Hillary Clinton called them a basket of deplorables? Well, they erupted then in that campaign, uh, and they feel as if no one's paying attention to them. The economy that affects them is is uh, failing, uh, and these people have no place in a world of political
2: correctness. Can he deliver for them?
4: We don't know yet. Uh, he, The economy is moving along nicely And if that happens And it helps them get ahead uh, Then they'll be very <clears> appreciative <throat> But the fact is There's very little evidence That the economic growth That the country is now right. enjoying Is helping people much right. at the bottom
3: Where were you? Were you on the CNN set in 1994? Yes The the Republican I, I sat there I remember sitting on the couch The only major network that covered it Was Dan Rather On CBS And there was this revolution in 1994 Absolutely right. stunning. Is that what we're faced here in November? We could be.
4: That would be, They're talking about a blue wave instead of a red wave. That was the first time in 40 years in 1994 that uh, the Republicans took over the House of Representatives yeah. over Congress. It was a revolution.
3: Did anybody see it coming? My recollection is pretty much no. No,
4: not really. And we know what happened that year historically. What happened is gun owners... And the religious right came out in huge, unprecedented numbers. Nine
3: million new midterm Will voters. the blue crew come out this time around? That's what we don't know. It would include a yeah, lot of young people. Yeah, but you're Bill Schneider. You we, know what are, what's going to happen
4: here. Well, you know, there's an old rule. Never make predictions, especially about the future. Uh, well, the, the, John, you're writing that down, <laughs> right? <laughs> that was Yogi Berra. If I want, if I can cite my did, source. Did
2: Megan
3: write that in the wedding registry <laughs> yesterday? <laughs> yesterday John?
2: How long has that taken you? 23 <laughs> minutes and 18 seconds to bring up the Royal Wedding. John,
3: a question for Bill Snyder, please.
2: Bill, just to complete this conversation, the risk for many people listening in our audience, investors, business leaders, is that if the president can't address the problems that the minorities that you've brought up, that, um, believe they haven't been listened to over the last several decades. If he can't address those problems, that this country swings aggressively to the left. How big is that risk?
4: Oh, I think there is a risk that that will happen. Uh, It very much depends on whom the Democrats, who, who catches fire among Democrats. Will it be a strong progressive candidate like Elizabeth Warren? It could be Joe Biden. He would be the logical next person. The problem is he's in well into his seventies and he's part of the past. We don't know. That's what primaries are all about. And they're inherently unpredictable, but someone will always catch fire. The old rule is Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. That didn't happen in 2016. Republicans fell in love with Donald Trump and Democrats fell in line behind, behind Hillary Clinton. So even those rules aren't necessarily the case.
0: So there you have it. America has a president that its people wanted, or at least voted for. The trouble is, every time he tries to fulfill his populist promises, the unintended consequences of this simplistic approach become evident and the country is forced to retract and backtrack. One hopes that Karl Weinberg is right and that adults are finally starting to enter the room and surround the incumbent of the Oval Office. This has been The Rational Perspective. Until the next time, cheerio.